Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I'm an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is David Rubenstein. And this conversation was fantastic. I'm super excited to share this with you. So if you don't know who David Rubenstein is, today we're going to go through as much of his professional career as I could squeeze into one hour because there are gigantic buckets in politics, in business, and in media. And when I say politics, business, and media, I mean that by the age of 27, David Rubenstein was the right hand to Jimmy Carter during his presidency in the White House. He then moved on to business, decided that he wanted to make some money, and so he founded the Carlyle Group, which went on to become one of the world's most powerful private equity firms that exist and today have over $276 billion in assets under management. He's moved on to the media industry, where he hosts the David Rubenstein Show, and his guests include individuals such as former President Bill Clinton, former President George Bush, Oprah Winfrey, Jeff Bezos, the list literally goes on and on and on. I'm not quite sure why he is talking to me, but I'm certainly happy that he is. Mr. Rubenstein is also an author. He's written three books, and no shocker, all three have become New York Times bestsellers. So this is a real career highlight, lifetime highlight, a true honor. Mr. Rubenstein is one of the most interesting individuals I've ever had on the show, and I really hope that you enjoy this as much as I did. Here is David Rubenstein on The Jay Martin Show. Okay, guys, Jay Martin, CEO of Cambridge House here, and I'm joined right now by David Rubenstein. David, how are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks so much for making the time. I am very excited for this chat, and I have a web of directions. I would love to take it, and about 350 questions ready for you, but we're going to bang through as many as we have time for. You know, what struck me is preparing for this interview. About two hours ago, I was standing at my kitchen counter and my wife walked into the room. And as soon as I made eye contact, I realized that I had this massive grin on my face. And she gave me this look that said, what are you smiling about? And I realized that I hadn't been nervous. I was nervous and I hadn't been nervous for an interview in quite some time. And in my experience, when you have that combination of emotions like intimidation and excitement, which maybe equates to nervousness, I'm usually on the right track and doing the right thing. I don't know if you found that to be the case in your life and career. Yeah, I think everybody's nervous when they, you know, think they're doing something that is unusual, different, uh, exciting. So, but there's no reason to be nervous about interviewing me. That's for sure. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So a great place to start these conversations. I mean, my ambition here is to understand who you are and what drives you and what's driven you through your career. And we're going to talk about a bunch of that. But I'd love to just put it to you first, David. Who is David Rubenstein? Well, I'm a person who is today 72 years old, an age I never thought I would live to see just because I didn't imagine I would get to be this old. But I am. I came from very modest circumstances in Baltimore, Maryland. My parents were not college or high school graduates. I got some scholarships to law school and, and college and ultimately worked at the White House for President Carter. I left that when, after we lost the election to what then seemed like an old man, Ronald Reagan, who was then 69 years old. And I went back and practiced law for a while, but got out of that, started a firm called Carlisle, and it became a successful private equity firm. And then I used the profits I've made from that to basically become a uh, active philanthropist. I'm an original signer of the Giving Pledge, and I now spend a lot of time on patriotic philanthropy and on education matters and in the arts. And I now write books, and I also um, oversee a family office and also the biggest shareholder still in Carlisle. And I'm a person who's now sprinting to the finish line. I'm trying to get as many things done before my brain or my body collapses. Yeah, I, I heard you quote that before, that you're now sprinting to the finish line. So not slowing down, but actually trying to expedite a bunch of to-dos, it sounds like. I, I'd love to dive into that, and we will. First, I'd love to dial it back to, to when you were in the White House, and you mentioned uh, your parents were you know, not college-educated. You landed in the White House at a very young age, I think as young as 27, and you know, in a position you were directly advising Jimmy Carter. So talk to me about that, being at that stage in your life, uh, how you manage those responsibilities and what you took away from it. Well, I wasn't qualified, honestly, for the job of 27 years old, three years out of law school. But as it turns out, most people working White House staffs are not that qualified because they're relatively young people. We tend to have relatively young people in, in government very often. 
it's a great thrill to be advising the President of the United States, fly on Air Force One, go to Marine One, go to Camp David. I think the President of the United States is listening to you. And unfortunately, we got inflation to 19%. We didn't get the hostages out of Iran. We had long gas lines. And so I'm not sure my job was done that well. But in any event, it's a heady experience. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I almost never took a day off. So I highly recommend that if people can get that kind of job. Now, I've heard you say in Washington, it's one of the few places where power matters more than money. And it's not necessarily who's got the big bank account, who's starting the new venture capital firm. It's who has the ear of powerful people. I was really curious about that. And if you think, why is that so, maybe it's obvious why that's unique to Washington, but is there a bigger narrative there that applies to the rest of us that is sort of unknown to us? Well, the reason I said that, and I think it's true, is that in Washington, what matters is power. As Henry Kissinger famously said, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. People love to have power. And if you are a very wealthy person, you can go into government, and many wealthy people have gone into government. They are often uh, not very successful. They don't have the skills necessary to do things in government, and they are sidelined. Whereas somebody has no money can be very well respected in Washington and be very powerful. So we never really measure people by their net worth when they were in government. We measure them by how successful they are in getting their programs through and how powerful they are. So it's, it's unusual. Most cities in the United States are probably the opposite of that. And do you think, is that shifting in Washington or is that as true today as it was when you were there? Well, there's no doubt as the country has gotten wealthier in the sense that there are a lot more people who have billion dollar fortunes, more people probably obsess over that. And I think more people when they go into government are probably thinking of how much money they're going to make when they leave government. And many wealthy people now live in Washington, but still, Washington is a place where power is the ultimate uh, measure of your your net worth, really, not your your Forbes standing. Okay. Now, trying to pull on another parallel, if there is one, or maybe proving there isn't, what's what are the big changes that you've observed from your time in the White House would have been about 40 years ago through to today? What major shifts have occurred? Well, among other things, in those days, the news of the day came about on 15 minutes a night on the CBS, ABC, or NBC news shows. There was no cable TV. There was no CNN. There was no streaming. And of course, no Netflix or anything else. And everybody paid attention to what was on the evening news or the next morning in the Washington Post or the New York Times. That was it. And so you, you didn't have to worry about constant social media commentary or criticism. Uh, you played for the next news cycle, which was typically 24 hours away, whereas now, today, every news cycle is one minute away. And so that's a big difference. Secondly, in those days, Democrats and Republicans thought their job was to talk with each other and get something done that was somewhere in the middle. Today, that's not the case at all. People have no interest, by and large, in getting a compromise done or having Democrats and Republicans work together with, with some obvious exceptions. And third, the President of the United States uh, today is probably not a person who is seen as having the enormous power that maybe he did or uh, many decades ago, because we now know as a result of having military failures, as a result of other economic failures we've had and other kinds of things, the United States is still very well respected around the world in some areas, but doesn't have quite the power that it did uh, years ago. For example, today, uh, China is one of the most powerful countries in the world, maybe the most powerful next to the United States. China was barely on the horizon then. We worried more about the Soviet Union than China. So you have a, a different situation, different news cycles. You have a, an obsession with, uh, with money around the country and around the world. You didn't quite have that obsession with money before, and then that filtered into Washington. Democrats and Republicans didn't talk, don't talk to each other that much then. They did. And last, you have different world situation where you have a concern about climate change, which didn't exist before, uh, worry about China, which didn't really work, exist before. So it's a different situation. Now, so much of what you said there, whether it was uh, a decrease in power with the president, whether it was Democrats and Republicans not being as inclined to work together, or whether it was a shift to the what you call the one minute news cycle. And I have to assume that's probably people responding more to noise than to signal, becoming more reactive than proactive. All three of those things lead me to believe it's a less efficient system. Is that accurate or, or what do you think? Well, I wouldn't say less efficient. I would say it's very efficient in the sense that everybody knows everything almost instantaneously. And so you have a kind of market test uh, instantly of whether an idea works or not. You, you, if you try an idea out, you'll get instant criticism right away. You don't have to wor worry about a poll 
that will be conducted in a week because you'll know right away what people think and how whether that's more efficient or not. I don't know, but it's mm. a different system. And today, everybody um, is constantly aware of what other people are thinking around the world because of Twitter. For example, Twitter didn't exist. Uh, nothing like it existed. Now, if you say something, you put something in your Twitter account, everybody knows your thoughts right away and people respond right away. It's a completely different world. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's just completely different. Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes me curious because isn't it the politician's role to respond to public sentiments? And if public sentiment can be driven and honestly, maybe misled as a consequence of the abundance of media and the lack of barriers to entry for media, which is is a good thing, you know, most of the time, probably. I wonder um, how that just changes the focus and the direction of presidential decisions. Well, I'm talking about in my own country. Um, let's suppose we'd had Twitter and Facebook and uh, the equivalent uh, at the time of the Constitutional Convention. Um, what do you think would have happened? We would have had the same constitution we came up with, or when we declared the like, country independent of Britain, the Declaration of Independence, would that same document have been written in the same way if we'd had Twitter, people were talking all the time, everybody knew what was going on all the time. It's a completely different situation. Mm. Um, so um, it's always interesting. I want people to know about history, but we have to recognize that today the situation is so different that if the founding fathers came back today, they wouldn't recognize the country and they wouldn't recognize the way we conduct business. No kidding. Yeah. And, you know, one of the very unique things about the United States Constitution, as I understand it, is that it was drafted to create an ineffective government with the purpose of limiting power on any one person, right? It was created to to inhibit the power of the president, not to uh, empower him or her. That's correct. Remember, they had King George and they didn't want another tyrant. So Article one of the Constitution is the Congress, not the president. And the president was not given that much power, to be honest. He couldn't declare war. He couldn't increase taxes. He had relatively limited power. Now, obviously, the president's become more powerful, but it was a different situation where they didn't want to have um, anybody so powerful. And they came up with a system that we now call checks and balances, where the judiciary can check the legislature, the legislature can check the executive and so forth. It's a different system than had ever existed before anywhere. Now, what you just said, the, the president has obviously now become more powerful. In what ways, David? In what ways has the president become more powerful? Well, the president of the United States effectively declares war now. Now, uh, we haven't had a war declaration since World War II, but we've been in plenty of wars. Right. So the presidents can get resolutions and not technically declarations of war. Uh, in, in truth, the president of the United States now sets the budget because when the president sets the budget while Congress appropriates the money, it's generally within one or two percent of what the president proposed. So the president is really determining whether we go to war more than anybody else is. The president is really setting the financial goals, if, depending on you know what he wants. That's generally what's going to happen. And the president of the United States is now a global figure in the way that no member of Congress is. People all over the world know who the president of the United States is. Very few people know who members of Congress are. So the president of the United States has become the embodiment and the symbol of the United States at any given time. Whereas that was not the intent of the founding fathers. They didn't think that the president of the United States would be quite as powerful or visible as he has since become. Right. Now, you touched on what you said, the importance of understanding history. You're a three times New York, New York Times bestselling author. And the, your third book, which was just published, The American Experiment. David, what's your ambition for authoring these books? You know, we can look through your career and say, you know, political career, business and finance career media personality, and now author. What's your ambition and inspiration for doing this? Well, to some extent, I feel I've learned some things, and I like to have other people know what my thoughts are. Secondly, I have a lot of interest in history, a lot of interest, as you obviously do, in interviewing. So I try to combine my history interest and my interviewing interest by doing dialogues, which I then shorten, and then I put into some kind of book form. Um, I guess anybody, uh, you're very young, but and your kids are now one, three, and five. Mine are 33, 35, and 30. So you're, you're, when you get to my stage in life, you want to leave some kind of legacy. And I suspect uh, a book is a pretty good legacy because people won't, won't be able to have it for quite some time. And it's a way to keep your brain sharp, too, because when you write a book, you have to actually think. You have to actually do something. And I write the books myself. So all those reasons. But I guess one of them is, uh, is that I, I have some uh, ideas that I've come up with over a period of time of my life and I would like to you know give them to other people and maybe they'll benefit from them. Did you always know you would become an author? 
No, because it's a sad situation when I think about it. Where was I in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s? I wrote no books. Now I'm writing one a year. Why did I wait so long? I don't know. I, I wish I had written before many, many books. I, it's one of my regrets that I didn't do this earlier. So I'm now trying to do one a year, and I don't know how long I can do that for. I hope until I'm in my 80s, but you never know. Okay, I got I got to pull on that because, you know, when I say you worked in politics, you know, you were directly advising Jimmy Carter. When I say you worked in business and finance, you founded the Carlyle Group, $276 billion in assets under management. I talked about media. I'm not talking about media. You, you've interviewed George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Oprah Winfrey. I mean, the list is phenomenal. And as an author, three times New York Times bestselling author, why do you regret not writing books earlier in your career? It's easy to look at this and say, this guy's been on fire for 40 years. So why do you regret not getting, uh, getting to the page sooner? Well, I think a book is something that will live forever. So we do read books from people who are long gone. And so it's a way to kind of memorialize your thoughts. Secondly, I enjoy the process of interviewing people, as you obviously do. And I enjoy the process of writing, as I suspect you do too. It's a way to keep your brain sharp. And, and I also like to have people know my views just because I, I think it's enjoyable. So I just wish I had done it earlier. Now, I am a big collector of books. I have a very large library of historic books. And I, I just, always, to me, reading is so important. Let me explain what I mean. My parents were not college or high school educated. They could read, but they were not particularly book people. You know, got my library card at, at, at six years old. I could take out 12 books a, uh, a week. I did. I read them, read them right away, and I had to wait another week to take 12 more books out. I loved reading, and it opened up a new world for me. And I hope that more and more people will learn how to read and also take advantage of books. Books focus the brain more than a tweet does. Um, you know, I just think Thomas Jefferson probably wouldn't have been a great Twitter person, but he was a very good writer. Um, I can't imagine William Shakespeare spending all of his time on tweeting. He probably, you know, he wrote these great plays and other things. So I think it's a, it's a good thing to do to read and to, and to enjoy reading as I do. And I suspect you do too. You have books behind you. I assume they're not a prop. They're people you actually wrote that read those books. I assume. Yes. Yes. Same thing. I, I love it almost as a, for a host of reasons, obviously, but even to your point about focusing the mind, it's almost like a meditative exercise. And if I can protect my mornings and begin my day with an hour of uninterrupted reading, I love it. It sets me up very well just for the way I think through the rest of the challenges I may face that day. You know, people often ask me who my favorite interviews were, right? And The American Experiment, your newest book, is a collection of interviews with world-class historians. Do any stand out as your favorite when you reflect back on that? Well, David McCullough and Doris Kearns Goodwin are two of my favorite uh, authors. David McCullough is in this book for his uh, uh, book on the Wright brothers. Doris Kearns Goodwin is in some other books I've, I've done, but I just was with her last couple of days in, in a book festival in Sonoma, California. So I, I really enjoy their company and their enthusiasm. When you see a David McCullough interview or a Doris Kearns Goodwin interview, you really know how enthusiastic they are about the subject and it comes alive for you. So if you read either of their books, you know, it's enjoyable. It's an enjoyable experience just to read their books and you can't wait to turn the page. So those are some of my favorite historians. But I, I, I like a lot of the people that are great historians. John Meacham is a great historian, Michael Beschloss, Doug Brinkley, and so forth. And another way to ask that question, was there one grand takeaway, David, from authoring The American Experiment? The grand takeaway is this. I have two points in the book that I'm trying to convey. Point number one is that just as the human body has genes, uh, the American body has genes, and Americans have certain genes that are very, very important. I list 13 of these genes as being ones that are um, emblematic of our culture and our being. Uh, Canadian uh, have the same thing. Canada has certain genes as well. Uh, you would know them better than I. Americans' genes include things like the belief in equality, the belief in the importance of voting, the belief in the importance of immigration, the belief in the rule of law, the belief of free speech, and so forth. And so I kind of encapsulate what I think are genes that are important to our culture. I also want to point out that many of these genes are goals that we have. They're part of our body, but we haven't completely given them to people. So, for example, equality is something that Thomas Jefferson wrote about in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. But he didn't say all women are created equal. He didn't say all uh, people of all colors are created equal. He really meant all white men are equal. And, and so what we've been doing throughout our history is struggling to live up to the ideals of the founding fathers, 
and make sure that we get these genes fully developed. And so a lot of the book is about the, the experiment that the founding fathers came up with and how we've tried to give people certain rights and how we've struggled through the years to kind of live up to our ideals. And we've had stress tests. The biggest stress test of living up to our ideals was the Civil War. But we had a stress test after the most recent presidential election. The president of the United States didn't accept the results. And as a result, this country came very, very close to a situation where uh, the, the outgoing president wasn't prepared to be outgoing, it didn't seem. So it was a bit of a stress test, which we obviously survived, though. Yeah, that's it. I love that perspective because it's like you're you're looking at the maturation of the United States. Now, when you look at these 13 genes, whether it's equality, whether it's protecting free speech, whether it's encouraging immigration, do any stand out as under siege right now or or compromised at this moment? Are you concerned about any? I guess is my question. Well, I think uh, there's no doubt that the importance of voting is uh, is evident to everybody in our country. And therefore, while we don't vote in as high a percentage as I would like, people do believe that if you vote, it can make a difference. And that's why uh, a large number of people always vote. Not everybody votes, but a large number of people consistently vote. We are now have challenges to voting in the United States. Some uh, legislatures are saying, well, we don't really want to make it quite that easy to vote. Maybe there's fraud when that happens. We want to make it um, a little bit more difficult to vote, though that's not the rhetoric that's being used. And I think, therefore, that gene is under under challenge for sure. Interesting. Okay. Now, I want to double back to something you shared earlier. You talked about China, and you know, China wasn't a, wasn't in the conversation back where you when you were in the White House. It is today. You could look at the trajectory of growth of China and ask the question: Okay, the twentieth century belong to the U.S. Who will direct the 21st century? And on my channel, this is a constant point of conversation. Will China own own the 21st century? Most of my guests say no. The U.S. empire is, is in its adolescence, and that's what we're looking at here. But what are your thoughts, David? Well, obviously, as an American, I am biased. I want to say good things about my country, and I try to say good things about my country, and I like to remind people about the importance of this country, but you have to recognize that China is in a different situation than we are. China has three times as many people, and therefore, they have a bigger uh, consumer market than we do. They have you know, a bigger population that can do things that we just can't do. Throughout much of history, the ability to have technology and at your disposal enabled you to do things you couldn't do. Uh, without that technology. For, for example, uh, Canada is part of the British Empire, or the Commonwealth. The little, little nation in the North Sea called England, the UK, they ruled much of the world through the 18th century, for example, and part of the 19th century with a small number of troops. They had 20,000 20, troops in India, but they controlled India. And throughout the world, they had better military technology than, than other countries. Now, technology is more readily available to everybody and therefore, the advantage of technology to, to small populations won't be as great. So if you have technology available to you, you have the Internet available to you, military technology available to you, cyber technology available to you, and you have three times as many people as the United States has, you're probably going to be very powerful. So it's very difficult to predict what will happen. So think about it. This, this is year. This is 1921. I'm sorry, 2021. 2021. Yeah. 1921. Who would have predicted all the things that the United States ultimately did or what happened in the world? And so today in 2021, who can predict what will happen by the end of the century? But I suspect China will be much more significant than uh, it is today. And I can't say the United States won't be as significant. We are the, uh, the third biggest country in the world population-wise. Whether we will be then, I don't know. We, we might not even be the third biggest then. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the counterpoints to China dominance I often hear on the channel is, yes, the population is massive, but it's it's growing old faster than it's growing rich. And a large population uh, that is aging uh, and nor has wealth is more of a liability than an asset. They're okay. facing some super severe demographic challenges. What are your thoughts on that? Well, China for a while had a one-child policy because they didn't think they could feed all their people. Now they recognize they can create enough wealth to feed people, so they're now encouraging people to have more than one child. And when China sets its mind to do something, they usually succeed. Uh, in uh, the United States, we have an aging population as well. Now, the oldest population in the world is probably now in Japan, and so they have a much more bigger, a much bigger demographic problem than than anybody. But I and, and you're correct, China does have an aging population. But over the next twenty or thirty years, they can correct that a bit by 
letting people reproduce uh, more freely than they did for many, many years. The United States has one advantage over every other country, though, in terms of demographics. We are a country which um, allows and freely allows a lot of um, immigration. And we have about you know, 800,000 people become citizens every year. 40 million people in this country are immigrants. And that, that immigrants tend to be younger people, not always, but you get a lot of younger people coming as Im immigrants below the age of 30 or 40, for sure. Mm. As a result, that's one of the ways we keep our population growing and relatively younger. Um, you know, for a population to stay the same, a woman has of childbearing age has to have 2.1 children, 2.1 children, the average. The United States is at 2.1, but that's because we have immigration. Without our, that, our birth rate is probably closer to 1.9. Now, China's birth rate is actually lower than ours, but there's some countries that are even lower than that. So I, I think, um, you know, we have the advantage of having immigration to allow us to kind of keep our population younger and growing a bit. Whether that will continue in the future, I don't know. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. Okay. Now I want to get into some of the, uh, the public issues in the United States and just get your thoughts and perspective because, you know, you've been through four decades of watching, watching public sentiment uh, very closely. And from an outsider looking in, like, you know, I, I'm Canadian, my wife's American, my kids are dual. You know, I see a trend that I would call concerning, maybe dialing it back to the Occupy Wall Street movement when there began, we began to see some big division. And then this materialized a few years later with candidates like President Trump on one side, Bernie Sanders on the other. Fast forward to some fairly extremist groups, Antifa and QAnon. And and it's hard to wrap your mind around this reconciling. Now you've seen this this stuff before, I suppose, going back to the '60s. So, what are your thoughts, David, on what you see uh, in terms of civil unrest? And are you optimistic or are you concerned? Well, I am concerned, and I I do think that when I worked in the government, the government tended to have Democrats and Republicans come together. You know, they had differences, but they would recognize that ultimately they should come together. That doesn't exist so much anymore. The Democrats are very far to the left in many cases, and the Republicans are very far to the right, and they don't see any advantage in, in coming together. And as a result, I, I think it's going to be a, a real challenge for a while. Because the, the, one of the biggest factors is money. Men, members of Congress, for example, they're always raising money because they need to raise money for their campaigns or to help them with dealing with their, their, their colleagues in the, in the Congress, or they can keep the money for political purposes after they leave Congress. So they're always raising money and to raise money, you have to appeal to the far left if you're a Democrat or the far right if you're a Republican. And that keeps them very way far apart from the center. That's a problem. Also, because of social media, as I mentioned earlier, everybody knows everything right away. And you can't have a secret vote anymore. You can't have people say, well, I'll help you if you help me. That doesn't work so much anymore. So it's a much different environment than we, uh, we had just even 20 years ago. Now, clearly, Everybody in all periods of time in history always say the there are great problems now, and I don't know how the next generation is going to solve this problem. When we were younger, it was much better. That people always say that. Right. I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, you know, Cicero was telling people uh, that. I'm sure Plato was telling people that. Socrates. Everybody was saying it was better when we were younger. So I suspect in that context, maybe I'm worrying unduly about it. But right now, it does seem like it's a problem. Though I suspect, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years from now. Maybe people will have other problems. They won't have these, these particular problems. Okay. Now, I've, I've heard you be quite outspoken on one issue in the United States, and that's illiteracy. And I know you're, you're quite philanthropic in that direction. Uh, simultaneously, as an investor, I think education is one of the biggest sectors that's ripe for disruption. So talk to me about what you see. I mean, the, the numbers are, are higher than I thought. I think in the U.S., it's around 14% are right. functionally yeah. illiterate. That's um, 14% are functionally literate, which means they can't read past the fourth grade level. And this is not to say that they're they're literates in another language. This is illiterate That's in That's all correct. languages. That's okay. correct. How do you move forward and improve those numbers, David? Interestingly, um, and why should we really want to improve them? Well, literacy Great. is one of the keys of civilization. People remember people who have written things or people 
uh, want to educate people about things. And, and if you can't be educated, it's, it's not a good life. You're not likely if you're if you're illiterate to have a good income. Uh, in our country, 80% of the juvenile delinquents are functionally illiterate. Two thirds of the people in the federal prison system are functionally illiterate. So if you're illiterate, your chance for a successful life and a prosperous life is very, very reduced. And another factor is this. Most people learn how to read from their parents. If the parents can't read, then the chance their children are going to read is not good. So I, I think that's another problem. You continue this cycle of illiteracy. Um, there's no easy answer to it, but clearly K to 12 education in the United States is not as good as higher education. We have the highest, we have the best higher education system in the world. We're the envy of the world when it comes to higher education. Mm. But in K to 12, we are lagging behind, you know, so many countries. It's a sad situation. And I don't think anybody has an easy answer. Bill Gates put billions of dollars into it. And I think he's concluded he didn't really get that much for his money. We obviously have school systems that spend enormous amounts of money educating people. Doesn't always work. So I wish I had an answer. If I did, I would have gone to the Iowa caucuses and I would have run for president or something. I, there's no answer that I easily have. Right. Now, in today's day and age, do you still encourage people to pursue uh, post-secondary education like MBAs that maybe used to be far more valuable than they, you can say they are today? Two things about post-college uh, education and even college education. There are There is a view in the United States that Everybody doesn't need to go to college and you can be a plumber or, or craftsman and so forth. There's nothing wrong with that. In my view, my parents didn't go to college or high school and, and they, they had what they would regard as a happy life. But I do think that when you get an education, it makes you a better person, more informed. You can enjoy what life is all about. So even if you want to be a plumber, I think going to college is not a bad thing. You can, you'll be a better person for it. In terms of post-college education, there's no doubt that those people that have graduate degrees are going to financially do better than those people that don't. And also, I think they're going to enjoy life much more. So I do recommend graduate school. Um, I own, all my kids have gone to graduate school, and I had graduate school, and I, I highly recommend it if you can possibly afford it. Okay. Okay. Now, I want to shift a little bit and talk about the Carlisle Group, because this is uh, one of the largest venture private equity firms in the world. Um, you guys have $276 billion in assets under management. Give me, give me the high level overview, David, of what Carlisle is. Okay. Uh, historically, most investors invested in public equities or public debt or some type of fixed income. When the private equity people and the venture capital people came along in the 1960s and 70s, they said, we can make uh, better returns for investors if we are allowed to fix companies directly or start companies directly. And it mm. turns out that they were right. The returns that you get from venture capital or various forms of private equity are much better than the returns you get from public equities or public fixed income. It's because it's a less efficient market. Therefore, there's more you can do to add value and the rates of return will be higher. So um, when I came along with Carlisle, most of the private equity firms, then called buyout firms, were relatively small, and the venture firms are very small. Carlisle came along in 1987, and we came up with two things that were different than had existed before. One, we decided we would do not only buyouts, but all different, all forms of private equity investing, growth capital, venture capital, fixed income, other, all kinds of different things. And secondly, we would globalize it. And that has produced uh, other firms doing the same thing, Blackstone, KKR and Apollo are actually now bigger than we are, and they do much the same thing. There are now you know, probably you know, 15,000 various private equity firms around the world. So it's a big business. It's become one that has given very good returns to people. So Carlisle is a firm that's investing all over the world, theoretically, uh, to get you know, companies to be performing better than they were before, and to get very good returns for our investors, which are very often institutional investors, like teachers or firemen or policemen and their pension funds and so forth. So that's what we do. But I'd say the private equity world has not become one where our public image is as good as it should be. I wish that we had a better public image, but that's something we've been working on for quite some time. Can you can you talk to me about that? What do you mean by that? Well, when Mitt Romney ran for president, he was criticized for being in the private equity world. And, uh, you know, that's that was because private equity is one of the organizations, one of the areas you can criticize people for without having any political consequences. And you can make jokes about uh, members of Congress, you can make jokes about lawyers, you can make jokes about private equity because nobody really feels offended if you do. Uh, and private equity people have been our own worst enemy at times because at the beginning of the private equity world, 
We shipped Dobbs off offshore. We weren't worried about environmental concerns. We didn't explain ourselves very well. Now the world's changed and ESG is very important to private equity today, but the image hasn't caught up with the reality. So there's no doubt that um, many people are re resentful of what private equity does or jealous of private equity. And, and many people are shying away from saying good things about private equity, though I think clearly investors like it because they're giving private equity a lot of money. Yes. Okay. Now, talk to me about any any trends or sectors. And I know you're you're you know co-executive co chairman right. today, so I'm not sure how involved in the, in the day to day. Uh, but what what do you see, David, as trends and opportunities over the next decade that stand out to you? Well, I think uh, there's a lot of areas of change that are going on. Carlisle invested them. I have a family office called Declaration that invests in these areas as well. So let's just talk about one that today um, everybody has a view on, which is cryptocurrencies. Sure. At some point. Uh, people will probably recognize that I think cryptocurrencies are not going away. You can say whether they're valuable or not, or they're overvalued, but I think there's a great wealth of desire in, in, around the world for something that is different than currencies issued by government. So I think that'll be around for a while. Secondly, healthcare. Uh, when I worked in the White House in the late 1970s, 8% of the GDP of the United States was in healthcare. Now it's almost 20%. People, as they get wealthier, what they want to do is live longer and be medically more fit. And yep. as more and more countries around the world get wealthier, what they want to do is live longer and be medically more fit. So more and more money is going to go into healthcare. As people get wealthier, more and more money is going to go into financial services, managing your money and so forth. That's another very good area. And of course, things relating to software. As we know, software is something that now drives the global economy. And as people can come up with new ways to make software that's going to make your life better or easier, uh, you're going to see more and more companies in that area. I'm I'm somewhat surprised that you didn't mention uh, food production. Well, I couldn't mention everything, but uh, right. food production clearly uh, to survive, what you need is food. Uh, you people, what, what they need is basic food and shelter. What what do people what what all animals do and humans as well is three things: they eat, they try to protect themselves, and they and and continue existing, and they reproduce. That's what that's what all species do. So humans are are reproducing like all species. Humans are, are sheltering themselves and sometimes in fancy homes or other kinds of things, and they're giving themselves better health care, but they have to eat. And what we now know is that eating healthy will enable you to live longer. That was not always the case, but eating healthy, and in terms of being knowledgeable about it, um, people used to eat whatever they could get. Now people who are wealthy are wanting to eat healthier and healthier things, though sometimes they don't make good choices. In the United States, about half the adult population is obese. And therefore, people are not eating as healthily as they should. And uh, that's a sad situation. But clearly, people recognize more and more people recognize that eating healthy will enable you to live longer. Yeah, it does tie into your, your healthcare thesis there, right? Everybody wants to live longer, think faster, feel better. Yes. I mean, uh, diabetes is, a, is an example. Very often, if you're overweight, now some people have, have been born with diabetic kind of conditions, but very often, if you're overweight, uh, you're going to get diabetes and you can reverse diabetes if you eat better and, and without operations or without medication, you can reverse it if you just eat better, but that's not something people tend to do. And as you now know, if you, one of the things I often look at is if you look at professional athletes, baseball players, or even football players or basketball players from the 1950s and sixties, what is the most stark thing to, 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 to see with them? It is that how thin they were. Take a look at politicians. I look, take a look at president Kennedy or other politicians from the 1950s or 60s, the main thing that's stark to me is how thin they were compared right. to people today. People are just heavier. And that's going to be continuing for quite some time unless people are, 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 are able to really change the course we're on. And interestingly, in the United States, while longevity has increased dramatically, it used to be if you were born in 1900, you the, life, the average life expectancy was 49. Today, if you're born in the United States, the average life expectancy is about 78 on a whole, but it's going down a little bit because of obesity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm with you there. And, and actually health science specifically, I believe will be the biggest bull market of my lifetime. And one that I'm always looking for opportunities in one that I'm very passionate about, um, whether you want to call it, you know, recreational biohacker, whatever, I want to think faster, feel better, live longer, all those things. And we're hyper-focused on our food supply in this house. And that's looking at the source of food production, everything that occurs between source and our refrigerator. Uh, because I think 
Well, whenever I find that I become more aware of something and more sensitive to something, typically it's part of a bigger wave and I'm just one in a trend that's occurring and becoming conscious of all the contaminants and pollutants and the way our food supply has been compromised is definitely front and center in the conversation in my house right now. Well, there's no doubt that if you have a plant-based diet, you're probably going to be eating healthier food. Sure. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't eat meat, but and I don't eat meat. I'm a vegetarian. But I, I would, and I'm not probably the healthiest uh, person of all time in terms of my eating, but I, I do think that if you have a plant-based diet, you're probably going to be healthier than if you don't have a plant-based diet. And as you, we now know, many uh, meats and animals have had artificial, you know, I'd say ingredients put into them, which don't make you that healthy when you eat that. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Uh, I didn't know that, vegetarian. And if I'm correct, also no caffeine and no alcohol. Is that correct? No alcohol. That's correct. And caffeine, sometimes I have tea, but I, I don't drink alcohol because I think it's too complicated and you, nothing really good would come out of it for me. But but I'm sure other people enjoy their wine or so forth. Yeah. Yeah. I want to pull on that thread a little bit. Just just personally, I don't I don't drink alcohol either. And, you know, often I'm asked why. And, and um, I started as a one year experiment. I just wanted to see if my life would be different. It was so much so that I doubled down for a second, third and and now six years. But, you know. What appealed to me about that lifestyle was that consuming alcohol is probably the most common extracurricular activity. I challenge you to find a country where it's not the go-to activity for social engagement, whether that's networking, uh, building new relationships, celebrating a win, reducing stress, all of it, it's there. And so emancipating myself from that behavior seemed like one of the biggest contrarian steps I could take in my life, hopefully would help me approach other situations with the more critical thought process, because I think contrarian thinking is a muscle that you have to practice. The, the biggest opposition I hear from friends is they say, oh, well, I work in real estate and cocktails is how business gets done. So I could never take that step. And I say, well, I work in finance. You've worked in politics, business and finance, media. Uh, has that ever been a hindrance in your perspective or only an advantage? Well, the reason I don't drink alcohol is because I have observed people who were drunk when I was younger and I didn't want to be like that. I also think alcohol to some extent is designed to remove inhibitions and to maybe have you do things you wouldn't otherwise do. And I didn't want to be in that situation. Obviously also, if you drink a lot of alcohol, you can get uh, kind of diseases that, you know, that are life-threatening. But I recognize that some doctors would say and scientists that a glass of wine every day can't hurt you. Maybe it does help you for some reason. So I just didn't want to take any chances that I have an alcoholic gene in my family somewhere. And if I start drinking, maybe something bad would happen. But I, in terms of your question, I, you know, I've done okay in life without drinking alcohol. Um, I don't think uh, you just have a strong personality. If you go to college, uh, there's a lot of incentives there to drink, but if you don't drink, I don't think anybody's going to punish you or something. And all the times I've had business meetings, I order water or tea. Nobody's ever made fun of me. And, and I never failed to get a business contract or something or get a, an order for a Carlisle fund or something because I didn't drink alcohol. So I don't think it's a big problem. It's just an insecurity. If you think that you have to do it in order to get something. I love that. Okay. I want to, I want to pull back to a couple of the industries. When I asked you, where do you see opportunities and trends? The first one you mentioned was crypto. And if I could get you to expand a little bit on any kind of a forecast or speculation for what the future of cryptocurrency might look like, David, where does your mind go? It is interesting. Um, I interviewed somebody, and it's coming out today in the news, and it'll be on TV soon. Uh, John Paulson, the famous investor who, you know, made twenty billion dollars on his bet against mortgages, he says in my interview with him that he thinks that all cryptocurrencies are worthless, and he wouldn't recommend it. Other okay. people I know who are so smart, Mark Andreessen, uh, he's investing in industries that revolve around uh, cryptocurrencies and the belief that it will turn out to be a very important part of of, of the financial system going forward. Uh, I have personally invested not in cryptocurrencies, but in, in a, a companies that service the industry. And my theory has been that there's clearly a, a, a desire for cryptocurrency, something that isn't government issued and something that can be a, um, a kind of a counter to what is going on in, the, in, in terms of inflation in the world. So I, I do think that it's here to stay and it's too late for government to get rid of it. The Chinese government is maybe trying to get rid of it, but I think it'll go offshore and Chinese investors will just participate offshore in crypto. I think it's like alcohol, uh, something we just mentioned. In the end, um, the government of the United States concluded that prohibition didn't work. There was too much demand for alcohol, and ultimately the government gave up trying to block it. 
The same will be true with crypto. Uh, it's not going to be a situation where you can you know, re restore it to the bottle anymore in terms of the genie. I just don't think so. Right. Yeah. And I kind of see three buckets. T tell me if you see it differently, David, where there's there's maybe you want to call them pure cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, soon to be central bank issued digital currencies, which will be their own version. Um, and then Silicon Valley founded digital currencies uh, from the tech giants that would benefit massively from holding their own currency. And do you see that segmentation? And do any of those three catch your attention or interest? Well, the first one is what we have now. And I think more and more people are, are kind of um, uh, issuing or creating cryptocurrencies. Uh, I think there is some pressure from some parts of the Federal Reserve System to have the Federal Reserve deal with digital currencies. And I suspect 20 years from today, uh, the Federal Reserve will have uh, all currencies will, that governments issue will be digital. We won't have any paper currencies 20 years, 25 years from now, maybe sooner than that. But as to a cryptocurrency that is issued by government, I don't know if that'll happen, but I do think there'll be digital currencies of some type that are, that are really effective currencies. And what you just mentioned, uh, Facebook tried to come up with a digital currency called Libra. They had to abandon that, but they're in effect coming back with something somewhat similar to that uh, with different uh, versions of it. And I do think that large companies will issue their own uh, in effect, cryptocurrencies and people will buy it. Now, I know you've interviewed Jeff Bezos, and that's, you know, honestly front and center for me because I could live my entire life. We could all at this point live our entire lives inside the Amazon ecosystem. Um, did he ever bring that up? Is this something he's looking at or did you get any thoughts from him about? When I last interviewed Jeff, um, crypto really wasn't that big a deal. So I didn't really interview him about that. But I wouldn't be surprised, though I don't have any inside knowledge, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, ultimately there's some pay system that uses cryptocurrencies that is unique to Amazon. I suspect just like Apple and Amazon and Facebook want to be in their, their environment uh, as much as possible, I suspect that they all will have some kind of version of cryptocurrencies uh, applicable to their service or their companies, their products in the not too distant future. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now I want to wrap up with some, some higher level, somewhat personal questions, just reflecting back on your career and a, a lot of wins that you've had, David, are there any attributes that you credit your success to when you found wins? Are there any consistent common denominators in your life that? Um, well, I, the advice I would give to people are the things that I observe, which is uh, don't take no for an answer. Uh, you're going to fail in life, but pick yourself up and get back into the arena. Um, persistence always helps. Reading as knowing as much as possible helps. You can't know too many people, so network as much as you can. Be courteous to other people. You never know, uh, you know, who might come back and help you in some ways. And being courteous, courteous is a good thing to do anyway. Um, also, try to have mentors and try to be a mentor to people, and also try to be ethically um, appropriate. I think trying to cut ethical corners ultimately will come back and haunt you. As I was taught by uh, one of my mentors when I was practicing law, it takes uh, you know five minutes to ruin a reputation, a lifetime to build it. So don't take any ethical shortcuts that can ruin your reputation. And for the rest of your life, you've got to live under a cloud. So I wouldn't recommend that. So those are some of the things I would recommend. I love that. And that first one, be okay with hearing no. It you know is I think about that. It was said to me earlier in my career in a different context. If you're not hearing no on a regular basis, you're not trying hard enough. And so it's a good indication, again, simultaneously with, with being nervous, it's a good indication that I'm on the right path if I'm hearing no and feeling intimidated. Look, by definition, any new entrepreneur, any entrepreneur is starting something in an area that nobody else thought could be, get, could be done or been, would have done already. So mm. when I started Carlisle, people made fun of me and told me that would never get anywhere. And so, you know, you just have to go on and, and live up your, to your dreams. Okay. Uh, my kids are, are one, three, and five. David, if there is any advice, big picture to set your children up for success these days, what comes to mind? Well, I obviously spending as much time as you can with them is, is a good thing. Um, secondly, uh, try to let the children decide what they want to do with their lives, not what you want them to do with their lives. Um, don't try to push them in something they don't want to do because in the end, they may come back to haunt you. Um, and the, the time that you spend with them now, one, three, and five, will come back to help you when you're much later in life. Right now, one, three, and five, you might think that they won't know you're not there or you're not helping them in some way, but they'll remember ultimately. And, and you get in the habit of helping your children. If you help your children, 
you know, they're going to be your ultimate legacy. So you want to help them as much as possible. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And to your earlier point, I'm going to have to exercise some restraint to not uh, encourage all of my kids to become the professional athlete that I never became. But, you know, it wasn't until I had children that I started counting the days I would travel. And my firstborn, six months in, I realized I was on the road exactly 50% of the time. And actually, if there was about a five-month stretch. It was 70% of the time. And um, and it was just this great, you know, staring me in the face uh, action that I could change. Where in your life are you willing to compromise? And where do you demand you stand firm? Well, um, I have certain high standards, but I recognize you can't always... Um get everybody to do what you want. And certainly your children, you can't always get your children to do what you want. So you have to be, you know, compromise. And obviously with human relationships, you have to compromise somewhat or you can't always get what you want. So that's true in almost anything you, you want to do in life. So, um, you know, you, I think you got to stand firm on ethical principles, on moral related issues, on things that go to your conscience. Or your conscience. You, you, you shouldn't, you know, bend on those things. But the general rule of thumb, Life is about a series of compromises. In fact, all of life is about compromising to some extent because nobody gets everything they want all the time. I love that. Okay. David, look, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time and getting in front of my audience and chatting with me. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate your giving me this time. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in. 